morning again. Time for us to look now at Luke chapter 16. Now, this is not the easiest passage in the Bible, as those of you who've been in Bible study this week will attest to. Can I encourage you to have your Bible open? It'd be really helpful to have your Bible open. Let's try and think through what this passage means in its context, in its flow, uh, because I think it's got something really quite precious to teach us today. Let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, do please help us now to understand your word and help us to... Uh, live in the light of the glorious future that you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember many years ago, my wife Carmelina and I came into some money and uh, we, we had to decide what to do. Uh, my dad's advice was this. Invest in stuff that lasts. Don't buy cars that soon rust away. Don't, don't go on a holiday that's soon gone. He said, invest in real estate. Uh, sensible advice. Isn't it? Sensible advice. You, you want to make the most of your money, so invest in stuff that lasts. It's a good principle. And friends, it's the principle that lies behind Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 16. Jesus wants you and he wants me to invest in stuff that lasts, that truly lasts. Uh, Jesus starts off chapter 16 with a parable. It's a parable about a rich man. There's a rich man... And he employs a manager. Now, the manager's job is to manage his master's stuff. He's a slave in the household who's in charge of all his master's stuff. But in the story, this manager has made some mistakes. He's lost some of the master's money. And <clears throat> looks like he's going to get the sack. He's going to get thrown out. Luke chapter 16 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Luke chapter 16 and verse 1. Jesus told his disciples... There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager realises his time in the job is limited. And so what he does, he starts to plan for what's going to come next after he loses his job. What he needs to do is make some friends. Make some friends who, when his time as manager is finished, will offer him a new job. So what he does, he, he lines up some of the people who owe his master money and he has a big stock take sale. Okay, End of year, end of financial year, 50% off, crazy, crazy, crazy discounts. Discounts if you'll pay up quickly. Verse 3. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The manager has set, set himself up for the future. Uh, he, he's made friends who will welcome him if he ends up out of a job. Now, as it turns out, the master is happy with what the manager has done. This uh, first 
End of stock take sale with all these debtors paying him straight back. His cash flow has improved. The manager has proved to be clever. He's proved to be shrewd. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And now Jesus gives the application of the parable. First he says, the people of this world are very often shrewd with their money, but unfortunately people who believe in God aren't always so wise. We can be foolish because we forget something vitally important. We forget that there's a sense that we're a bit like that unrighteous manager. It's not that we're going to lose our jobs. No, no, friends, soon we're going to lose our lives. Death is coming. And our wealth will be gone with it. So we need to be wise. Still in verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of the light. Like the manager with his job, we have limited time in this life. And so like the manager, if we're going to be wise, we need to invest with the next thing in mind. Jesus says, it's a beautiful phrase, unique phrase, he says we should use our money to gain friends who will welcome us into heaven after we die. Verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, here's how to be wise, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Slightly strange concept, isn't it? How do you you, you use money to to buy friends who are going to welcome you into heaven? let Let me try to illustrate. Imagine you've got $100. There are a number of things that you could do with your $100. You could buy yourself uh, a nice meal. That'll be enjoyable for now. But in heaven, there's no return. It's just spent and gone. Uh, Maybe you could put the money in the bank. That'll be good if you need it later in life. But again, you're not going to take it with you. There's no return in heaven. But what if there's a poor, struggling Christian that you know? What if you give the money to her? You're not going to get paid back on earth, but that poor Christian will end up in heaven. And when you get there, she'll be pleased to welcome you. Or or maybe you could invest the money in a missionary. The missionary helps some people put their trust in Jesus. Those people go to heaven. And when you get there, they'll be pleased to welcome you. Can you see the picture that Jesus is painting here? I think it's quite a precious picture. Heaven is all about relationships. Now, of course, fundamentally, preeminently, absolutely, it's about relationship with God, with Jesus. We saw that at the beginning, didn't we? That we're going to be praising God, praising the Lamb. But, but it's, it's not just that. Even as an added bonus, we get to be there together. We'll have relationships with other people. So if you, wanna, if you want your money to last... Jesus is saying, invest in people. Invest in people who will be there in heaven. Invest in helping people get to heaven. Gain friends for yourselves so that when your money is gone and your life is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
And Jesus goes on to talk more about money. He, he says the stuff of this world is transient. It's, it's soon going to be gone. God gives it to us for just a short time. But how we deal with our money now, it reveals our hearts. It shows what we really love. It shows whether God can trust you. It shows who your true master is. Verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little, that is the stuff of this life, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much in heaven. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, God's property is not yours, it's God's property, who will give you property of your own in heaven? No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, there's the first section parable of the shrewd manager and then these other teachings what's the point use your money to serve god use your money to gain friends who will welcome you into heaven well here's jesus hitting the hip pocket nerve yet again telling you what to do with your money how rude it's never been popular it's not popular now and it wasn't popular back then either. On that day, some religious leaders were listening to Jesus. They were successful. They were wealthy. They loved their money. And they didn't like this stuff that Jesus was saying. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And in reply, Jesus gives them both barrels because they're in real danger. These Pharisees, they're in real danger first thing that Jesus says in reply to them is, he says, you're all about justifying yourselves in front of people. You don't care enough about what God thinks. You're all about this life. You don't care enough about the next life. He says, you're all about trying to look religious in front of other people, but God sees what's really going on in your heart and he's not impressed. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. God knows your hearts. What people value, they might be impressed, but what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Second thing he says to these Pharisees is, you've got the time wrong. The Old Testament is coming to an end. You Pharisees, you think you understand God's Old Testament law. You assume that you're the ones who are going to be in God's kingdom. You don't realise that with Jesus it's a whole new thing. Now, with Jesus... People from everywhere are invited to join God's kingdom, including, as we saw last week, people the Pharisees hated, the tax collectors, the sinners, the, the, the people are coming from everywhere into God's kingdom now. And meanwhile, these Pharisees, with their attitude towards Jesus, they're in danger of missing out themselves. Verse 16. The law and the prophets, it's the Old Testament, were proclaimed until John. That's John the Baptist. Since that time, after John the Baptist with Jesus, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. Okay, he says, you're too busy pleasing people, not busy enough pleasing God. Second, you haven't realised it's a whole new thing with Jesus. And then the third thing Jesus talks about is the way the Pharisees use God's law. 
they're all about justifying themselves. They're all about trying to look good in front of people. And so what they do, they minimise God's law. They make it as small as possible so that they can claim to be obeying it. They look for loopholes so they can do what they want but still give the appearance of being godly. Jesus says it's the wrong way to deal with God's law. We saw it again, do you remember, uh, with the parable of the Good Samaritan? Trying to make, who's my neighbour? Make it as small as I can. No, no, Jesus is blasted out of the park. Everybody's your neighbour. No, no, he says it's the wrong way to deal with God's law. Every part of God's law is important. You mustn't minimise it, maximise it. Verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And then Jesus gives an example. This is an example of how the Pharisees minimise God's law so that they can do what they want but still give the appearance of being godly. It's the example of divorce. Let me give you a bit of background. Most of the Pharisees would have got married when they were young back before they'd headed off to Pharisee school and that kind of thing. Uh, their, their wives, no doubt, supported them through the tough times, through Pharisee college, and, and as they were getting established. But, but as the Pharisees got older and, and more successful, well, younger girls started to bat their eyelids at them, show them respect as the men of power and influence that they've become. And they're tempted. I remember when this happened in my dad's circle of friends... My dad, to his credit, has stuck by my mum for nearly 60 years of marriage, but around about my age, about 50, many of my dad's peers were very successful, very wealthy, and so they ditched their first wives, who'd put them through uni and struggled with them, they ditched their first wives and took up with younger women. Common phenomenon among successful middle-aged men. So, imagine you're a successful religious leader, a wealthy, successful Pharisee, and a nice young girl bats her eyelids at you. What do you do? Remember, you need to justify yourself in the eyes of people. You are a religious leader, after all. You want everyone to see you as a person who obeys God's law. That's how you make your money. That's how you get your respect. But, but you also want to trade in the old wife for a newer model. When Jesus' day, the rabbis debated at length about this. And what they did, they took hold of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. And they just took half a sentence from Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. If they'd taken the whole sentence, it would have been irrelevant. But they just take half a sentence. The half sentence reads like this. This is Deuteronomy 24.1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and then it goes on with the actual law. The religious leaders looked at that half sentence, took it out of context and went, Fantastic. There's our chance. All we need to do is find something indecent about the old wife. Then we can ditch her and marry our girlfriend and still be keeping God's law. Hey, presto. Now, some rabbis were strict about it. The unpopular rabbis were strict about it. They said, well, indecency, look, that could only mean if your wife is unfaithful to you. But the more popular rabbis were much more lax about it. They said... Basically, anything could be indecent, couldn't it? If she burns your dinner, that's indecent, isn't it? There you go. And so some of these Pharisees, following God's law, divorced their wives and married other women, all along piously claiming to be obedient to God's law, following the will of the Lord. 
Jesus says to the Pharisees, it's a perfect example of how you minimise and misuse God's law. God's law is all about being a faithful and loving husband, but you are using it to justify your adultery, looking for loopholes so you can do what you want and still appear religious. Verse 18, here's the example of how they minimise God's law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. These Pharisees, they might look good on the outside, but their hearts are far away from God. And if they keep rejecting Jesus, they're going to find themselves missing out on God's kingdom. And here in Luke 16, they're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting his teaching about money. And so he goes on to tell them another parable. It's another parable about money. In fact, if just notice this. Uh, You'll notice both parables in this chapter start with exactly the same words. So just jump back to verse 1 and then verse 19 and just compare it. Can you see it? There was a rich man. Same words. Same words for these two parables. Okay, second parable. Second parable. Again, there are two men. Before it was the uh, rich man and the manager. Now it's the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, Here on earth, the rich man lives in luxury. But Lazarus lives in poverty and squalor right there at the rich man's gate. I mean, he literally has to step over him every time he goes out or every time he comes home. But he does nothing to help the poor man. He uses his money on himself, enjoying himself. Doesn't use it to serve God. He doesn't use it to gain friends who will welcome him into eternal dwellings. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The rich man and Lazarus die and in the place of the dead in this extraordinary picture we see, in this terrible, dreadful picture, we see that their situations are reversed. Lazarus is by the side of Abraham being comforted while the rich man is in torment. The rich man says to Abraham, will you please send Lazarus to help me? But in the same way that he didn't help Lazarus on earth, it's now too late. He received all the good things he was going to get in his lifetime. That's what he spent his money on, stuff that just lasts for a lifetime. And there's no passageway between where Lazarus is and where he is. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment... He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Did you see that? In your lifetime you received your good things. Didn't go beyond while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. 
Besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The rich man then says to Abraham, please send send someone from here, send someone from the grave back to earth, warn my brothers. But Abraham says they've got God's law. They'd actually read it instead of looking for loopholes. They would know the truth. But if they reject God's law, they will even reject someone coming back from the dead to warn them. Verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that proves to be prophetic, doesn't it? Powerful image, isn't it? And what's the message? What's the same as the first parable, isn't it? The rich man served money, not God. The rich man loved money, not God. The rich man did not use his money to gain friends who would welcome him into eternal dwellings. And that's an eternally bad decision. All right, can you see what's here in Luke chapter 16? Uh, First, that parable of the shrewd manager, the point, serve God, not money. Use money to gain friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Then that kind of debate with the Pharisees who are sneering at him, they're sneering at Jesus' teaching because they love money. Jesus says, you're all about this world. You're all about appearing righteous and and, and pious in, in front of other people, but your hearts are far away from God. You're misusing God's law and you're in danger of missing out on God's kingdom. And then the second parable, the rich man and Lazarus, the point's the same. He served money, not God. Didn't use his money to make friends to welcome him into eternal dwellings. That's something he's going to regret forever. Okay, let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. Uh, First, this is not really the point of, uh, of of the passage, but I just... Pastorally, I think it's very important that I deal with this issue. Let me just briefly address the issue of marriage and divorce. Now, some people argue from this passage that they take it out of context and they argue that any second marriage is by definition adulterous. Um, I've even heard of people in our church being told, in other churches, uh, being told to divorce their second spouse and return to their first spouse, which in fact is exactly what Deuteronomy 24 is saying you can't do. I, I don't think that's what this passage is saying. Not not if you read it in context. The Bible is clear, for example, in John chapter 4, that a second marriage is a real marriage. Remember that woman who had five husbands? Jesus doesn't say you had one husband and then four fakes or something. No, no, five husbands. A second marriage is a real marriage. And if that's where somebody is at, we should honour that marriage as such. But the point Jesus is making is valid. We mustn't try to find... Um, godly excuses, pious reasons to get out of one marriage and into another. We mustn't look for loopholes. 
We mustn't try to put some kind of religious spin onto what is basically our desire to commit adultery. God's will for our marriages is perfectly clear. What God has joined together, man must not separate. I was dealing with a situation a bit like this the other day. A man uh, about my age, not in our church, he wanted to meet with me. Um, He told me about uh, how his wife neglects him, about how she doesn't respect him. He said, isn't that abuse? Abuse seems to be the seems to be the magic word nowadays back in Jesus day it was indecency now it's abuse if you can find abuse then you can do whatever you want apparently he said doesn't the bible say it's okay for me to divorce her if she's abusing me I dug a bit deeper and sure enough there's a woman at his work a younger woman a woman who really understands him I said to him mate you're the abuser You're abusing God's word to justify your desire to commit adultery. Not what he wanted to hear, and a quick end to the conversation, and I don't think I'll get any recommendations from him about my marriage counselling skills. (laughs) But it's exactly what Jesus is talking about here, isn't it? God's will will is for us to be faithful in marriage, not to look for loopholes. Now, I know this is a sensitive issue. I'm sorry I've dealt with it so briefly. I'm sorry I even made a joke of it then. I know it's an issue of great pain for some people. Um, if you want to talk to me further, please do. Send me an email or something like that. We'll talk. We'll talk. But I do want to get onto the main point of the passage. Main point of the passage, it's about how we use our money, isn't it? Now, of course, we're saved by Jesus. You can't buy your way into heaven. And uh, you can't lose your place in heaven because you don't give enough money. But friends, money is a good litmus test. You know what a litmus test is? It goes blue or red depending on if it's an acid or base. Money is a good litmus test to show who you really love. Is it God or money? Money is a great indicator of what we really believe. It's very easy to talk about being a Christian. Very easy to show up to church on a Sunday and, and, and look like a Christian in front of other people. But it's when Christianity starts making demands of your wallet that you have to start thinking, hang on, do I actually believe this or not? It's when it starts to cost you that then you find out who your real master is. That then you find out who you really love. That then you find out if you're living for this world or for heaven. And so the question Jesus is asking of us in Luke 16 is this, are you using your money in service of God? Although it's more specific than that, isn't it? And this is quite unique and quite quite beautiful, I think. Here's Jesus' question for you. Are you using your money to gain friends who will welcome you into heaven? Now, of course... The, the great goal and joy of heaven will be to be with God and with Jesus, to, to know and worship the, the, him who sits on the throne and the lamb forever. Our aim is to go to Jesus, not, not through Jesus, to some other thing. But Luke 16 shows us another wonderful joy of heaven, and that is we'll be there together. We'll have relationship with each other. So let me ask you the question, Is there going to be anyone there to welcome you?
Will there be anyone in heaven to say thank you for the way that you spent your money on earth? The way that you invested your time on earth? Imagine, you die and go to heaven. You arrive and there's a whole queue of people. Some of them you don't even know. A whole queue of people waiting for you. One person says, shakes you by the hand, says, thanks for giving me that money on earth. I know I couldn't pay you back then, but I really appreciate it. Welcome in. Welcome to heaven. Nice to see you. Another person pipes up. You never even met this person. Thank you so much for giving money to support that missionary. She told me about Jesus. So now here I am in heaven and I've partly got you to thank for it. I'm so glad to see you. Pull up a chair. Let, 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 let's have a chat. Or imagine you're in heaven and you meet someone from Chatswood Presbyterian Church. Thanks for having that deep chat with me in morning tea that day. That really turned things around for me. Thanks for, for giving to the work of church. Church was just so important on my Christian journey. Thanks for the way that you served. And made me feel welcome at church. It really helped me on my Christian journey. And then for the rest of eternity, every time they see you, they give you a bit of a smile and a, a nod and maybe we'll even have our own Chatswood Presbyterian Church secret handshake in heaven or something like that just to, just to say, thanks very much. Really enjoyed. Really pleased that you helped me on the way. Sound like a nice way to enter eternity? I reckon it's worth investing in, don't you? Now, sometimes people ask me, what, what, what's your vision for CPC? I think this is ultimately it, isn't it? To be standing before the throne, worshipping the lamb, but also just smiling at each other and saying, thanks very much for your help on the way. Friends, here's how to truly invest in stuff that lasts. Use money to gain friends who will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Let's pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we look forward to being with you, to seeing you face to face and delighting in your glory forever. But thank you, Father, that we're going to be able to do that together with other people. Help us to live now in the knowledge that this life is short. Help us to use our money to gain friends who will welcome us into eternal dwellings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.